0: Uh, Turn to Psalm 105, and let me just tell you before we get started uh, where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Uh, We're going to be in, in the Psalms this Sunday and next. Today we're going to be in Psalm 105. Next week we're going to be in Psalm 106. The week after that, which is uh, the 19th, Jimmy Blanton, who is the, uh, the head of the Columbus Baptist Association, uh, he'll be here to preach for us on September 19th. And then September 26th will be the first Sunday in somewhere around a nine or a ten-week series that we're going to do on the church. And let me go ahead and, and, uh, and put a, a plug-in on that series. I would really encourage you to be here for that, so I would encourage you to be here every Sunday, of course. But uh, this series that we'll do on the church is uh, is important because some of the things that we'll address in that series or that we'll talk about, uh, we want to um, we want to present or put forward in such a way that we say this is how this is what we understand the scriptures to teach about who and what and why and where and all that kind of the church is, what it does, what, right, how we gather together, all those things. And we want that um, God's Word as He reveals His purposes and plans in the church to have a direct connection with the way that we think about ourselves as a local church body, as Edgewood Baptist. And we want to think about what God, God has to say about the church Uh, in terms of uh, what we do when we gather together. So, uh, that's sort of a a vague, ambiguous way to say we hope that this series that we spend on the church will actually be a a formative time where we actually begin to sort of shape and define, at the very least renew uh, in our minds what our identity is as the people of God, described or labeled as the church. In the scriptures, and so I would really encourage you to be uh, to be a part of that and to be here as often as as possible. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to it. This is something the elders have been discussing, uh, along uh, with our pastors, discussing and praying about. And uh, we we trust that the Lord is is in this. All right, Psalm 105 today, Psalm 106 next week. Oftentimes when we read the Psalms, if you're anything like me, you, you tend to go to the Psalms and you read them in sort of a very, um, in a very segmented way. So, okay, what Psalm am I going to read today? Well, I'm going to read such and such, and I read that, and then the next day I'll come back and maybe I'll read the Psalm after that, or I'll have some sort of a system. And one of the things that is, uh, that is nice to discover as you go through the Psalms is that actually not only, um, not only are we given… The psalms for a specific reason. There are things that God wants to communicate to His people through the psalms, but even in the way that the psalms are laid out and in their collection together as a collection of songs together in one book, that has been done with design and intention. And all that being said, Psalm 105 and 106 are actually two psalms that I think are supposed to work hand in hand. All right. And if, if I were to try to sum up the relationship or get across to you without going into the sermon for next week, which I haven't prepared, all right, if I were to try to get across what the connection is between Psalm 105 and Psalm 106, I think it's a contrast between the Lord and His people. So Psalm 105, what we're going to look at today, you could say Psalm 105, the message of Psalm 105 is rejoice, God remembers. And then if you go to Psalm 106, you could sum that psalm up by saying, repent, God's people forget. So, God remembers, God's people forget. And the two psalms, 105 and 106, play off of each other. We're only going to be looking at Psalm 105 today, and because it's a lengthy psalm, we're not going to be able to cover everything. JT, in our, uh, in our earlier reading and time of prayer, read Psalm 105 up through verse 24, so you pick up with me at verse 25 as we read the rest of the psalm and then open with prayer. After saying that He had caused His people in Egypt to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries, verse 24 In 25, we read, He, the Lord, turned their heart to hate His people. To deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke. And there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines also in their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came and young locusts, even without number, and ate up all vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits, of all their vigor. Then He brought them out with silver and gold, and among His tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to illumine by night. They asked, and He brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river for he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. He gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, how sad a statement it is that it takes passages like this to remind us that You never forget the words that You have spoken. You never forget Your people, but we, in contrast to You, so easily forget and are distracted. Would You help us now, as we spend time in this song, to celebrate the fact that You never forget? that you remember all of the things that you have spoken to us so that you fulfill them in every good and perfect way. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So rejoice, God remembers. One of the interesting things about the way that some of the psalms work, and it's not all the time, but I think we have it in, in this psalm, is that oftentimes a psalm opens up with a stanza that's meant to be an introduction. It's perhaps maybe a call to worship or a call to celebrate and to give thanks. And then after that initial call, you go in to talk about what it is or why it is that we're celebrating, what what it is that God's people have to be so happy about. And then you'll get to the end and maybe there'll be a conclusion to the psalm. In this psalm, in Psalm 105, there really is not a conclusion to the psalm. There is, however, an opening introduction, which I think is in verses 1 through 7, and so here's here's what I want to do. The introduction in Psalm 107 is calling us to a certain response that is necessary and right and appropriate in light of what the psalmist is going to go on to discuss in verses 8 and following. Here's the dilemma for me though as a reader. I read verses 1 through 7, And I see the psalmist saying things like, give thanks, call on the Lord, sing to Him, glory in His name, all of these things. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that, but I'm wanting to know why, what what is there to get so excited about, but I have to wait till I get to verse 8, but verses 8 and then all the way down to verses 45 are so long and there's so many details and there's all this review of Israel's history that by the time I get to the end of the psalm, I've forgotten what I'm supposed to do in the very beginning of the psalm. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So what I'd like to do is actually do something a little bit different. I think the introduction actually can function almost like a conclusion as well. So I'm going I'm to set the introduction, the first seven verses aside what the psalmist calls us to do, I want to spend most of our time looking at why it is, what is the ground of our joy and our celebration and our praise in this psalm, and after looking at what the ground of our rejoicing is, why it is that we're called to worship, I want to come back to the introduction and say, now here is our response. All right, that seems clear as mud, I know, right? But hopefully by the time we do it, it will make a little bit more sense. Okay, so verses 1 through 7, the psalmist is calling God's people to give thanks to the Lord, to celebrate, to worship Him. Starting at verse 8, he begins to tell us why we ought to be thankful and filled with joy, why we ought to celebrate. The reason that God ought to be worshiped, the reason that God ought to be praised, the reason that we ought to be thankful to the Lord, we're told in verse 8, is because He has remembered His covenant forever. I can tell by the response, you're moved. That was not the delivery that we were expecting after that buildup, after that anticipation. He remembered something. Hey, I remember stuff all the time. I'm not asking people to celebrate me. In verse 8, He remembers or has remembered His covenant forever, and then skip towards the end of the psalm. Look at verse 42. He remembered His holy word with Abraham, His servant. So after the call to worship the Lord. on the front and back end of the psalm is a statement about God remembering His covenant, remembering His Word to His people. That statement, God remembers His covenant, God remembers His Word, that frames the body of this psalm, which is meant to help us interpret everything that falls in the middle. Now, Having said that, bear with me for a minute, we'll we'll get the the academic stuff out of the way, and then we'll try to to delve into things that hopefully will be at least felt more applicable and more relevant, okay? When we read in verse 8 that we ought to be shouting for joy and praising the Lord because He has remembered His covenant, we tend to take a very literal or wooden or flat reading of that statement, He remembers. But in the Old Testament, oftentimes, to say that God remembers something is saying more than just what God is doing in His mind. It says something, it catches in a short little pithy way the fact that God has His mind set on something, and because His mind is set on it, He acts on it. We we use this language ourselves, right? Uh, If a husband remembers that today is his anniversary, and he buys flowers and a card for his wife, and he walks into the door, flowers, card in hand, the wife turns and sees, her face lights up, and she says to him, you remembered. Now, even in that exchange, we know that what the wife is trying to say is more than, you remembered a date on a calendar and it crossed your synapses for at least a split second of time. We know that what the wife is saying is, you remembered, your remembering your mindfulness of that date worked itself out or bore fruit in the fact that you are giving me reason to celebrate that remembering with you. You're thinking of me. You're thinking of us when you remember that. And look at you coming home, bringing gifts and bringing something for us to to enjoy together because of your remembering. Do you you see? So, So we get the idea that remembering Is not always just a mental act. Remembering can be the mental act that drives you into some sort of action. We see this in the Old Testament when you think of things like Noah in Genesis chapter 8 when he's been on the ark and the rain has been pouring and pouring and pouring. And here is Noah and his family surrounded by a bunch of animals on the ark. And in in Genesis 8-1, we're told God remembered Noah and all of the animals and He caused a wind to blow over the earth and the water began to subside." Right? God's mind and attention being set on Noah is the reason that the floodwaters don't remain, but they begin to subside so that Noah and his family can go out and begin to live life again. So the question is, in Psalm 105 then, when we're told at the front and the back end that we ought to be praising God because He remembers, what is it that God does in this remembering or His setting His mind on the covenant? What kind of action does He take? And the rest of the the psalm goes into giving you one item, one action after another that God does for His people over a span of eras of Old Testament history. So, because God remembers His covenant with Abraham, what does Psalm 105 tell us? Well, it says that God protected and preserved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, patri- the patriarchs, when they were small in number and small in strength. Because He remembered, because He was mindful of a promise that He had made to His people, even though they were small and insignificant, He kept them. He would not allow people who were stronger than them, kings, to touch them. Because He was mindful of His promises to them, He made them untouchable to people who would ordinarily have their way with them. When a famine was going to come onto the land. Because God remembered that He had made promises to them, He had sent ahead of time a deliverer in the person of Joseph in order that they would not wither and die in the famine, but that they would be saved and delivered and brought to life. He made them fruitful in Egypt. Then the Psalm skips in verses 26 and following to the Exodus. They find themselves as slaves in the land of Egypt, and what does God do? God sends another deliverer in the person of Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron begin to execute God's judgments on the Egyptians on the land to punish them for the way that they have been abusing and mistreating God's people, and to bring them to a point where they are releasing, setting God's people free. God frees them from their bondage and slavery because He remembers the covenant. When He brings them out of slavery, He does not bring them out empty-handed, but He brings them out with their hands and arms full of riches. They leave richer than when they came. They go into the desert, and God miraculously provides quail, luxury food. For them to eat. Bread from heaven he brings down to give them, to feed them day in and day out. And when they run out of water and have no water to be found, he causes a river to flow out of a rock so that they can drink from a stream. And Psalm 105 says the reason that he did all of that, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going to Joseph, going to Moses and Aaron, going to the wilderness wandering for 40 years. Oh, and let's not forget that He actually did bring them into the land that He promised Abraham He would give to them, and they conquered it, and they settled in it, and they lived in homes that they did not build, and they drank from wells that they did not dig. Psalm 105 says the reason that all of that happened is because God remembered that He had made a promise to Abraham. Here's the other side of that. Notice that in Psalm 105, it's not simply that all of these miraculous, exciting, awe-inspiring acts are attributed to God remembering His covenant, but also included in these acts that God does are things that we would label as being negative acts. So on the one hand, He promises to Abraham and to his descendants this land, but we've just spent months in Genesis looking at the patriarchs. They lived their lives as landless, wandering people. God did that. God did that not because He had forgotten what He promised. God did that by design because He had promised them the land. God called forth a famine. God allowed Joseph to be sent to Egypt as a slave, to be put in chains. God did that why? Psalm 105 says that God did that for the same reason that He did everything else in Psalm 105, because He was remembering His covenant promise. How long of a time span does Psalm 105 cover all these miraculous acts, all these tests and trials, all that tie back into the promise of God? If you start with Abraham, and if you just roughly estimate that Abraham maybe is on the scene somewhere around 2000 B.C., maybe, I don't don't know. Don't quote me on this, all right? Let's just say 2000 B.C. And then all the way to the Exodus, maybe 1400s, they wander for 40 years, then they're in the land for a couple hundred years before they actually get their first king. Probably from Abraham to the time at the end of Psalm 105 where they're settling into the land before kings are mentioned, you probably are covering in Psalm 105 a period of a thousand years, somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand years. That's a thousand years of God acting on behalf of His people because He made a single promise to one single man, and it lasted for a thousand years. If God shows Himself to be faithful to His people, Because of one promise that He made to one man, and we see, bare minimum, that the effects of that promise benefited God's people for a thousand years, what must be the benefit of God's promise to His people when He makes a promise to His eternal Son? A thousand years, ten thousand years, a millennia, eternity? Listen, this is not, we're not making a leap that the scripture itself does not make. All right? If you have your Bible with you, you need to hold your place here in Psalm 105 and you turn to Luke chapter 1. Skip down in Luke chapter 1 to verse 72. Listen to what Zacharias says when he is celebrating the imminent birth of the Messiah. Zacharias is recorded as saying, John the Baptist's father, he's recorded as saying, singing in Luke 1, verse 72, God is bringing us salvation from our enemies to show mercy toward our fathers and to what? remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father. That's Psalm 105 language. That's Psalm 105.8. He has remembered His covenant forever. So now, all of a sudden, If Zacharias is being led by the Spirit to make this kind of a statement, we don't just have a thousand years represented by the promise to Abraham in Psalm 105, but we have to go at least another thousand more to the birth of Christ. Now the promise to Abraham covers two thousand years of God working on behalf of the promise that He's made to His people that is now coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. But we ask again, if that gift, if those blessings, if those things came to God's people because of one promise that God makes to one man, what must the benefits and the blessings be to God's people when He promises on His eternal Son? Go from Luke chapter 1 to Hebrews chapter 6. And start at verse 13. Listen to what the author of Hebrews does, comparing and contrasting God promising Abraham with God promising something to the Son. Hebrews 6.13, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. And then notice verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Now, skip over from that passage to Hebrews 7.20. Here is the oath that God has made that gives us our firm, secure hope. Hebrews 7 verse 20, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to Him, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If in the Old Testament God can make a promise to Abraham, and because of that singular promise, He will show Himself generation after generation, era after era thousands of years after thousands of years to be faithful, to develop and build that promise, to bring it to fulfillment. If God has made a promise to His own Son in the person of Jesus Christ, is there any chance that those promises will fail? No. And this is the connection that we need to make. The reason that Psalm 105 is a song that we can sing, that we can celebrate, is because what the psalmist is celebrating in small form, small but significant ways about the character of God, having His mind set on His Word so that He fulfills it to His people, is the same God that we celebrate and worship today. All of the promises that God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ will remain until the end. There is not one thing that happens in your life that falls outside of the purview of God's promise to bless you and to glorify you and to raise you up with Christ to rule and reign with Him forever. Everything that you encounter, everything that you experience in the here and now, every single minute, every event, every circumstance is framed, is covered by the promise that God has made to His Son to enact a better covenant for His people. You find yourself in the exam room getting the news that you don't want to hear, that you dread. God has not forgotten you. You lose your spouse. You lose your family member. You lose a child. You lose your health. God has not forgotten you. You lose your way. You lose your focus. You lose your love. You lose your fervor. God has not forgotten you. In fact, if Psalm 105 means anything, it means that not only the high points of your life, but also the depths of your life are covered by the promise of God. God does not forget His Word. God does not forget the people whom His Word has been given to. He does not forget then, and He does not forget now. That's reason to be thankful. To know that every single thing that happens in my life is, in some mysterious, providential way, God doing nothing less than what He does in Psalm 105. Everything that He brings my way, everything that I encounter in some way, even if I don't see it, even if I don't understand it, God is nevertheless taking every single thing and using those events, those people, those circumstances to work towards the fulfillment of His promises to me which are rich in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what God has done. That's what God is doing. That's what God will do to make us thankful to give us reason to celebrate, to give us reason to worship. The Lord loves to make Himself look good by honoring His Word. Because I don't want to miss it, look at the end of Psalm 105. If you were to approach Psalm 105 and say, okay, in light of the call to worship and to, and to praise and to thank the Lord, what, what has God done that makes Him worthy of that praise? The, the psalmist would say, He remembered His promise. He remembered His covenant, and because He remembered, He acted in faithful, appropriate ways to fulfill the word that He had spoken. Then you could ask, towards the end of Psalm 105, you could ask the question, Well, what was the purpose in doing that? To what end? Look at what, skip down to verse 44, verses 44 and 45, after saying that He gave them the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor, verse 45, so that they might keep His statutes and observe His laws. One of the reasons, not the only reason, but in Psalm 105, the reason that God makes good on His promise and brings it to fulfillment, brings the people from wandering to slavery to wandering again to living and dwelling, settling down into the land. God says, I did that in order that I would have a people who would serve me. People be very, very careful that you do not presume upon the grace of God in such a way that God's grace and mercy to you becomes an excuse to think lightly of His riches. That you do not begin to think that God's grace and mercy, that His faithfulness, to His covenant promises, gives you an excuse to disobey. God builds a people for Himself. He gives them a home with Him so that they can live with Him and enjoy Him forever. None of that has changed. When Jesus is leaving the disciples, having cut the new covenant by His death and resurrection, He's about to ascend to the Father. He says, go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The reason that God shows Himself faithful to us is in part so that we will respond with joy and gratitude in acts of obedience to Him. Let me suggest that because of this connection between God's faithfulness and His people's obedience. Let me suggest that maybe one of the reasons that God's people may not be able to enjoy His faithfulness the way that they ought to is because they're not walking in obedience. It's hard to celebrate the goodness and the righteousness and the purity and the holiness of God, His mercy and His forgiveness to you when you abuse it day in and day out with willful hardened, unrepentant sin. You can't do both. Maybe one of the things that God's people ought to do is to consider that the goodness of God, His faithfulness to us, the riches that we enjoy are not, first and foremost, to make us comfortable in this present age. If anything, there's a way in which the more we enjoy the riches of God and His faithfulness, the more that we are built up, the more that we are drawn to Him, the more uncomfortably we sit in this world in this present age. He made a people for Himself to enter into the land so that they would be strange and peculiar people. Do your neighbors look at you and say, that is a strange and peculiar family. I don't get them. Right? I'm not talking about being weird just for the sake of being weird. I'm talking about you live a life that is out of step with this world because You so value the riches of God in Jesus Christ that it is your joy and delight to walk in obedience with Him and to serve Him all the days of your life. Young people, teenagers, young adults, let me really encourage you on this point. In this technological age with the onslaught of social media and news cycles and influence makers and all this sorts of stuff, your generation and the generations to come are probably facing challenges that many of us in this room cannot fully appreciate. There is almost nowhere that you can go where the world is not bombarding you with images or with messages, or with words about what you should be chasing after, how you should be living, what love looks like, what it means, be very careful. Be very, very careful that you do not fall into the trap of thinking that because God has been kind to you, It absolves you of any responsibility to live as a strange and peculiar person in a very hostile world. He has bought for Himself, on the blood of His own Son, a people that He would make zealous for good works. So now go back to the introduction to Psalm 105. If God is this kind of God, whose mind never drifts away from the promises that He's made to His people, He never forgets them, He never loses sight of them, and in fact, everything that He does with them in some way is in service to fulfilling His promises so that they can enjoy. His riches and presence and reward, now we go back and say, now what should we do in response? Verses 1 through 7, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the people, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, speak of all His wonders, glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Look at verse 4. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. You know what one of the best things that God's people can do as we continue to see and understand and recognize more and more about what God has given to us is to go ask for more. In human relationships, that's considered bad form, right? I give my kid a candy bar and what do they ask for? A second candy bar. I think, you lousy ingrate. I'm not giving you a candy bar next week for that. Whereas God gives, and the way that God's people show their appreciation and their love for Him is that they come back to Him again and say, will you give me more of that? And God gives. And He never runs out of blessings. He never runs out of goodness. He never is exhausted. He never is tired. He never tells His people, I can't listen to another request. He says, you come seek Me. You come look, and you will find. You ask, and you will receive. You knock, and the door will be opened. So maybe one of the best things to do in response to what God has already done is to say, well, if God has done already all of this for me, why am I not approaching Him more? He is willing and able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Why am I not asking? And then look at verse 5. Remember. His wonders which He has done, His marvels and the judgments uttered by His mouth." If God's remembering of His covenant works itself out in appropriate actions towards His people, it may be that one of the things that the psalmist is telling us to do, that the Lord is telling us to do in that statement in verse 5 is, in the same way that my mind set on my promise bears fruit in blessings to my people, as you remember my word, as you remember my deeds, well, that ought to usher forth into some sort of fruitful response. For example, you, listen, I'm confident that the Lord is able to speak however He wants to to tell you, here's what this means for you personally. At the very least, at the very least, it has to mean something like this, the more that I set my mind on what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. The more that I set my mind on the promises of God and I press them down deep into my heart and mind and I make that my focus, that's where I'm looking to. I want to know what the Lord has declared about Himself. And the more I see what God has done, the more my life begins to look like what God has revealed in His Word. God has said that in Christ He has delivered me from the dominion of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of His Son. And the more that I think about that, you know what I find? That in my remembering, I don't fear the domain of darkness the way that I used to. I don't mind, well, that might be a little bold, I do mind. But I'm getting bolder in my standing against those things because I remember this is how the Lord delivered before, this is how He did it in the past, this is how He's done it for me. As I remember, I act in ways that are appropriate to that remembering. There are few things that God's people can do better than to sit and soak in God's Word, in His promises, and to rehearse in their minds what God has done for them. Do you do that? It'll change you if you do. God does not forget His promises, and because God does not forget His promises, He does not forget His people. Let's pray. Father, how amazing it is to think that an infinite being, whose mind cannot be limited, who knows all things, has been set and directed towards us. That there is not one minute of our existence, not one fraction of a second that is not being worked according to your providential design to our good and to our fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that our security and our confidence in the blessings that you have promised to us are not dependent upon our righteousness, are not dependent upon our acts of obedience, but are secure in the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ. But having said that, Father, help us to respond to your kindness with gratitude as we walk by faith And as we obey following in the footsteps of Christ, thank you that you do not forget. Help us to remember that in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Let's stand as we sing. Messiah, my Savior, there is power in your name. You're my rock and my Redeemer, there is power in your name. Stand in the fire beside me. You roar like a lion. You bleed as the lamb. You carry my healing in your hands. Thank you, you're dismissed.